Lieutenant Joe Pangaro. I've been a cop for 27 years. I like to say I got a backstage pass to life. Well, guess what? I got some tickets for you. So come on in, pull up a chair, turn up that volume, and let's go. Chasing Justice is on. Good afternoon, my friends. Welcome to Chasing Justice. I'm your host, Lieutenant Joe. So we look at our world today, and that's what we do here uh, every, every weekday at 3 o'clock on Chasing Justice as we get together. Your afternoon drive time home, or if this is your sitting around having an early cocktail, whatever it is that you're doing, I'm glad we're together. So some things that have been in the news recently that have been, I don't know, I guess it goes along with the whole too much crime. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know, we don't really understand, we don't get it. There was, in St. Louis, there's been a video going around of a homeless guy sitting on a curb and a young man comes up behind him and they have some kind of conversation. Then you see this young man loading a gun, loading a handgun. And once he gets it loaded, he racks around and he just executes this guy, shoots him in the head and kills him. Now, what, what is going on with this? I, I'm teaching a bunch of law enforcement officers today. We're teaching about uh, leadership and uh, supervision and mentoring. And it's, it, it's one of these things, you're trying to prepare people for the future. And I talk to these officers and I'm saying, listen, uh, what's it like now being a law enforcement officer out in the street every single day? Because as I've said here many times, the reality is the only thing that protects society from crime is a proactive, uh, aggressive police response to crime, right? So if you don't have any crime in your town, you don't need a, an aggressive, proactive response because there's nothing going on. So there's a lot of beautiful little towns like that. And the police are there in case, you know, they do their job, uh, they monitor traffic, they do those kind of things. But in places where there's a lot of crime, the only thing that's gonna restrain crime and keep your community safe is actually aggressive, proactive police work. So these officers, almost to a person, were pretty clear on the fact that, yeah, there's not a lot of proactive police work going on anymore. Nobody wants to uh, lose their job. Nobody wants to get indicted for doing their job. Nobody wants to be second-guessed uh, when you're in a dangerous, deadly situation. So therefore, people are just answering their calls and moving on. Now, this is a sad thing for society. This is unfortunate for our society, but this is not uh, just the officers I was talking to today. I talk to police officers from across the country all the time. And this has become the general consensus that as we move forward, uh, you're going to see less and less aggressive, proactive police work. You're going to see cops answering a call. When something happens to you, when you're victimized, uh, they'll come out to the call and they'll take the report, but they are certainly not going to go out of their way to do anything that's going to get themselves indicted for doing their job. Because you know what? As we've said thousands of times here, there's lots of people out there committing crime that are violent, that are dangerous, and they don't like to be arrested. They don't want to be held to account. So you know what they do? They fight. They resist. Uh, it's, it's, and what are the cops supposed to do? Take a beating or just let the person go? Well, society's making the call. They're saying, you should probably just let them go. Let them go. Don't, uh, don't, don't fight with people. Don't arrest people. Don't, if they don't want to be arrested, let them go. And that just emboldens people who are engaging in criminal activity. So I wanted to mention that. Recently, there was a police officer in Chicago, a young five-year veteran. Now, Chicago is a dangerous town. It's very dangerous. Uh, this young uh, officer was murdered. He was killed in the line of duty, but not before he got off some, some shots at the, the teenager who 
engaged him and shot and killed the officer. So uh, our world is more and more dangerous for our law enforcement officers. So one of the things I want to talk about real quick, because I know there's a lot of law enforcement people here in our audience that listen and join us all the time, and I'm very happy about that and proud about that, that my brothers and sisters are out there and, and families of law enforcement and military families and good, decent Americans, whether or not you have a law enforcement member uh, in your family or not. One of the things that I talked about today was when we're trying to understand the stresses of police work and the stresses of police work in itself um, are, are, I don't know, I, I guess the reality is you get used to them once you get on the job. When you first get there, you're very aware of the fact that you're carrying a gun with you everywhere you go. You're very aware of the fact that um, violence is a potential part of your every single day existence that people can attack you, that people can attack other people, and you may have to intervene. Uh, even if that person is twice as big as you, you still have to jump in there and do the right thing and try and protect people. So I, I looked back and I said to this group of young, young men and women who were going to become supervisors, or they just recently become first-line sergeants, supervisors in their agencies, and I said, one of the things I can help you with is I can help you understand the concepts of leadership and what it means to lead what it means to understand the, the, the value of good leadership. Because if you have bad leadership, bad leadership, uh, it, it can damage an entire organization. Now, on our bigger scale, when we look at our nation, and we, we had a, uh, a broadcast about this not too long ago, talking about leaders, that weak leaders can lead things to violence. And I think that was very well uh, received, that program. If you haven't heard it, go on the podcast. You can find it. It's, but it's truth. Leadership makes a difference in every organization, everything that we all do. And preparing these young officers in a world where people are against them, and I've been doing this long enough to have seen law enforcement people go from heroes to zeros and back to heroes again. So it's really just a matter of, of time um, till people will turn around and see police in a different way. What that's going to take, though, it's going to take people really reaching their, their limit with violence and with crime and people being victimized when they don't when they don't need to be victimized when it could be handled through strong proper law enforcement but one of the topics that came up uh, one of the stresses for law enforcement uh, supervisors is the concept of can you order one of your officers one of the men and women that are in your charge can you order them to do something that could end up in their death that could lead to their death and you say, Lieutenant Joe, what are you talking about? What, is a, what does a sergeant do that's going to lead someone to their death? Well, actually, there's a lot of things that we do. When there's an active shooter incident, for instance, we train our officers that they are to go in. The first officer there is to go in, follow the sounds of the gunfire, and confront, confront the gunman. Uh, and that happens in one of three ways, right? The, the gunman sees you, you're law enforcement, uh, you approach them, and they put their weapon down and they surrender. Then you arrest them. Okay, that's the first thing that can happen. Number two, they see you coming and they take off and run and they lock themselves in a room. They barricade themselves in. Okay, then you contain them, right? So you arrest them if you can, you contain them if they take off. If they continue to be violent, at that point, uh, the officer is expected to use deadly force to stop the person from shooting and injuring and killing innocent people. 
So those are the three choices that officers have. They can arrest, contain, or apply deadly force to stop, stop the violence and save innocent lives. Now, as the supervisor, we don't tell our officers, uh, hey, there's an active shooter. Don't go in yet, guys. Don't go in, girls, because uh, it's dangerous in there. You have to stay out here. No, we don't do that at all. We, we tell them they must go in, that they, they go in right away, and they try to confront uh, that danger and stop it from hurting other people. Well, this clearly is an instance where a supervisor can order their officers into a situation where someone can get killed, law enforcement can get killed. It's absolutely a, a potential and a reality. It's very scary. There are other times as well, when we get an armed robbery call, armed robbery in progress, and we send cops there, they get dispatched there. We don't say, hey, listen, why don't you go slow so that the robbery's over when you get there because this otherwise you'll be in danger. No, we expect them to go there quickly and rapidly respond to the situation and try and protect people and, and serve and do all those kind of good things we talk about. But the reality here is that we never actually prepare our supervisors in law enforcement for the need to understand ordering someone to something where they could potentially die is something that could live with them for the rest of their lives. Now, this came to me after I was the supervisor on an event where we had some people who were committing bank robberies. Uh, there was three or four guys at a time going into these banks and robbing them with rifles. Um, AR-15s type of rifles, AK-47, very powerful rifles. And they would go in and, you know, display the weapons and scream, get on the ground, get on the ground. And they would rob the bank and run. Well, in one of these incidents, uh, one of the last ones that they had committed, they went in and they, they fired some rounds into the ceiling. You know, they popped off a few rounds with, with people in there, with women, children, men, young people, old people in the bank. They let off a couple of rounds. That tells you that these are very, very dangerous people. Uh, and the reality is, you know, what do we what do we do then when you have these kind of dangerous people? So uh, as this as this happened, it, they were doing it all over a couple of counties uh, here in New Jersey. And at one point it happened in my town and they went in and they fired some rounds in the ceiling. They committed the robbery and then they took off and they drove a short distance away to where we had a shopping mall. And they parked their car. The car that they took to the bank was a stolen car. They parked their stolen car, they got out, and they loaded themselves and their weapons and the money in their own real car that was parked at the mall, and they took off. Well, after all of these incidents, we finally got a break in that there was a woman shopping, and she saw these people get out with rifles and get in a car and drive away, and she called. She said, hey, listen, I don't know what I just saw, uh, but I just saw a bunch of men get out of a car, and it looks like they had guns, they had rifles, they got in a red car, and they took off. So when we got that call, we called, uh, we called the stores in the mall and said, hey, who has parking lot surveillance? What can we look at? And they said, hey, we actually, um, we can see the car. We see the guys with rifles uh, and we actually got a license plate and they gave out the license plate. So now at this point, we put out an all points bulletin, an APB. Everybody look out for this vehicle, wanted for armed robbery, armed and dangerous, be careful, that kind of thing. And you know, you gotta figure, you know, they would take off and get out of there as quick as they can. Well, about 15 minutes later, one of our officers, a young female officer, she was an excellent cop. She was great, uh, very smart, talented, uh, an absolute asset for our agency. Um, she gets on the radio and she says, hey, I think I'm behind that car, the, the robbery car. Now everyone gets silent on the radio now because police officers in general carry handguns. 
not everybody carries rifles in their police cars with them. We used to carry shotguns. Uh, some agencies carry carry weapons. M4s, which is like an AR-15. It's a lot of different numbers, right? M4, AR-15, AK. It's all different kind of rifles. Um, but they're all semi-automatic rifles uh, intended to be used for law enforcement purposes. And this officer gets on and says, I think I'm behind the car. She calls out the plate and we say, yes, confirm. That's the plate. Where are you? So in, when it comes to pursuit, uh, a pursuit for a pursuit to be initiated in modern times, you, we used to chase people for any reason. If they did a violation, they took off, we chased them. If it was a car violation, a motor vehicle violation, something simple. If they didn't stop, we chased them because you're not allowed to ignore a cop. You've got to pull over and be held accountable for what you did. But we've changed that in law enforcement. In most locations now, we limit the reasons that officers can engage in pursuits. Matter of fact, in some places, they've cut them out completely, uh, except for very few uh, reasons. So in our case, we, we had cut out most of the motor vehicle violation thing. You see somebody run a red light, they don't cause an accident. If you get their license plate, oh, we give them a ticket later. We're not gonna uh, engage in a pursuit with someone who for, for a red light ticket when now we can cause an accident, we can get in an accident, we can hurt a civilian or something like that. But in this case, we had men engaging in bank robberies where they're firing weapons around civilians. These are very, very dangerous people. And this is not the kind of thing that you can allow them to escape. If you can get them off the street, that is what you should be doing. So she engages and she says, okay, uh, I'm gonna stop them uh, at this intersection. She gives out the name of the intersection. In the meantime, we're sending uh, as much back up there as we can. We're alerting the surrounding towns because uh, she was going north on the highway and it was going to lead into other towns very shortly. And as the supervisor, I'm listening to this take place. And she says, okay, I'm going to light them up, which is police term for activate the overhead lights and pull the car over. Now I'm thinking about this. As soon as she says, I'm going to pull them over, uh, there was no other officers with her there. Uh, backup was coming and it was close. It wasn't far away, but it wasn't right there with her. And my concern as the supervisor was if she pulls this car over and these people jump out with rifles, she's got a handgun and they've got rifles. Rifles are much more powerful, more accurate, uh, much more deadly than a handgun. I said, so she is really uh, outgunned in this particular situation. You know, what kind of protective um, position is she going to be able to take? Uh, and, I, and I hope she's okay. So she says, okay, I've activated my lights and they're taking off. They're continuing to go north. They're not stopping. So now it's actually a pursuit. And in most jurisdictions now, uh, when there's a pursuit, unless it's for a specific reason, like I said, the supervisor will get on and terminate the pursuit. And that's what they say, terminate the pursuit. We're not, we're not chasing somebody, depending on the reason. Well, in this case, the reason was very serious. These people were very, very dangerous to the public. They had to be taken into custody. So at that point, I allowed her to continue. I didn't terminate the pursuit because to let them go, they could go to another robbery scene where they could kill someone. And we have an opportunity to take them into custody. So we made sure the backup was coming and now she's in pursuit and she's going north on this highway and she's doing a great job. Officers are supposed to call out uh, a bunch of information for the supervisor who's listening to make a decision whether or not to allow the pursuit to continue. And some of the information that they call out is what road they're on, obviously, what direction they're going, the amount of traffic on the road, the amount of pedestrians in the area, and the speed of the roadway as well as the speed that they are going and the speed that the suspect vehicle is going. So in this court case, she's calling it out. It's a 50 mile an hour highway. It was afternoon. 
uh, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that. And she says, traffic is light. We're doing 62 miles an hour going north on the highway. Um, she's describing the intersections that are coming. So we're trying to get the surrounding towns to start sending people, get people up on this uh, highway so that we can have multiple officers around when this car stops. So she's, she's very good. And my, my realization at that point was if I terminate this pursuit, this officer will live to see another day. If I don't terminate this pursuit and they pull over and start shooting, she may lose her life. So this was a, a decision that no one had trained me for. No one has, has trained me or anybody else because I've asked, I've done surveys. Uh, what kind of training have you been given as a supervisor to order an officer to something that where potentially they could die? And uh, there is no training. Nobody's doing it, right? So I'm trying to come up with it anyway. At least I talk about it in my leadership class. And I said, so this young lady was an excellent cop and my job as the as the supervisor was to evaluate the situation and make a decision to let this officer continue or to stop it well the reality is that when, when officers take the job and they take the oath and they don the gun and they don the badge and out they go their job is to do things that are dangerous sometimes and at this point she was in a pursuit not a gunfight she was doing a good job keeping them in sight she's describing them uh, she said she could see the weapons, she could see the men in the back looking back at her. So obviously they were probably plotting, what's our move? What are we going to do? Keep running? How far can we run? Do we pull over and shoot it out? Uh, and I continued to allow this, this pursuit to continue. Uh, at one point, she got into the next town, uh, went through that town, got into the next town. So now she's two towns away from us. And again, it, it seems like forever for backup to get there. Um, but she says, okay, I'm getting to a little more traffic now. Uh, but it looks like they're slowing down. I think they might be stopping. Now, this is another moment that as the supervisor, uh, I had to understand my role. My role is to supervise police officers who have to do dangerous things. Like I said, if there's an active shooter, we don't say, officers, don't go in. It's dangerous in there. No, we send them in. Uh, when we have to confront dangerous people, we don't say, well, don't go because they're dangerous. No, we have to do it. And in this case, the judgment was these people had to be taken into custody. Um, and this was an opportunity to do it. My concern was just that there was no backup with her. But I didn't want to call it off prematurely, so to speak. So she says, okay, I thought they were pulling over. They're not. There's actually more traffic out here. Where is the backup? And backup was now about two minutes away. People were converging on the highway trying to get to where she was. She goes for about another minute or so, and she goes, okay, okay, I just got cut off. I got cut off. A car cut me off, um, and she made a couple, and then she got into some traffic. They're going up and around the cars. They're up on, on the side, and I, that's when I said, okay, terminate. And the reason I terminated it uh, at that point was not because I didn't want her to get hurt, which I didn't want her to get hurt, but her job is to do her job, and sometimes cops get hurt. That's, that's part of what happens. Uh, we try to avoid it of all costs as best as we can, but sometimes we can't. And in this case, that wasn't my number one concern. My number one concern was that now that their cars were on in between her and the suspect car, there was other people involved. Now you can have an accident from a pursuit. The bad guys are trying to get away very quickly. She's trying to keep up with them. They're cutting around people now. Uh, and at this point, I had to call off the pursuit. And I said, that's it. You know, terminate the pursuit, return to town, and uh, let's take a report. We passed it on. Other towns are now looking for the car, trying to pick it up so that they would, uh, they would initiate a pursuit if they saw the vehicle and try and stop it. So at this point, 
in the tale, the the idea, and I'll tell you what happens in the long run here. But first, what I realized in that was that I wasn't prepared to make that call. I made the call because I understood my responsibility, but nobody gave me any training into that concept because you got to figure, follow it, follow it out to its logical end. Had she pulled them over and she got out, she took a good safe position behind her car door like we teach officers how to do it. She's got her handgun there and these uh, individuals step out with rifles and they start to shoot at her car. Well, the rifles could probably go through the car doors. They would probably have taken her out. She probably would have lost her life or been seriously injured. And that was, uh, that was a heavy weight for me to have on my head to, to balance between what her job is, what her responsibility is, what my responsibility is, and, uh, and what we were trying to do. Now, I, I asked around, I said, let, I, let me look around and see what, what kind of, maybe there's training I missed, I should have gotten this training for me and for my officers, my supervisors. And I looked around, I didn't really find anything. Uh, the closest thing I found to any kind of information like this was uh, in the military and there is some training for military personnel to understand the consequences of their actions. When they go into combat, uh, people are probably going to die. So it's very limited, but it wasn't about them ordering someone to do something where they died. It was about understanding you're going to engage in things with weaponry where people are probably going to die. You need to be mentally prepared for that fact that you're going to be responsible for the deaths of people in combat. Uh, justified, you know, but still, as human beings, nobody really wants to kill anybody else. So I realized there was nothing there, and I and I talk about it now, and I got to tell you, there's a there's an absolute silence in the room when I bring this up. We had 25, 28 young sergeants and a couple of new lieutenants, and then we had 15 or 16 people online at the class. And you know, they talk and they joke and they answer questions and they go back. When I started talking about this and I brought this up and I said, have you ever been trained to do this? Are you prepared to do this on your next shift when you go back to work? Are you prepared to order one of your officers into a situation where they might die? And then there's gonna be the funeral. They're gonna fold up that flag and they're gonna pass it off to the, to the wife, husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, mother, father, whatever relationships they have there. And you're gonna be sitting there and it'll be because you were, you were involved, but you made a call to allow it to continue. And that's a difficult thing in law enforcement. And people don't think about these kind of things when it comes to the, uh, the blue line. You know, what's this blue line? Why is there a blue line? The blue line is racist. The blue line is, blue line is not racist at all. And these kind of responsibilities, the officers in your town, if you have a beautiful little town and there's not a lot of crime and you know, that's great. That's, that's good for you and, and where you live. But every town is going to experience crime and danger for law enforcement at some point, whether it's once every 10 years or 10 times in a day. The reality is our officers are out there and they're pledged to do the right thing to protect and serve their community, to protect and serve you and your family. And these kind of uh, advanced trainings really are something we need to talk about. Uh, I wrote an article for it. I write for Blue Magazine. It's a, The Blue Magazine. It's a police magazine nationwide. I write for them. And at the time, I wrote an article about it with my research in it and what I found. And what I found, there was not, not a lot out there. And I made some suggestions of how we can run supervisor training programs. And that's why I include it in my leadership, supervision, and mentoring class. Because I want these officers to go back and think about this. Are they prepared? which really opens up, opens up the door, doesn't it? Like when they go back and look at their department and say, hey, chief, uh, 
Lieutenant Joe brought this up, and uh, no one ever trained me on doing this, but I may have to do this. You may have to do it. Uh, some other supervisor may have to do it. Let's look at our training programs overall. Are we preparing our officers for real events? Because, you know, like every other job, uh, law enforcement can become complacent. You know, when you first become a law enforcement officer, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a unique feeling. I mean, you got this nice uniform, you're in a police car, they give you a gun, you're wearing a gun, you got a badge, you got handcuffs. It's, you're all very aware of all this equipment and, and all this stuff you have on you. And you start to think about, why am I carrying a gun? Why do I have a gun? Because you're dealing with situations that may require you to use a firearm in the course of your duties, in the course of your job to protect yourself or to, pre to protect others. And when we do training, you know, uh, a lot of police training involves officers sitting in a room and listening to lecture over and over and over again. We go, we go through use of force, we go through domestic violence, we go for PPE, we're supposed to know about that, bloodborne pathogens, uh, we talk about a pursuit policy, we talk about restraint in handcuffing, all these kind of things police train on all the time. Uh, and, and contrary to what people believe, when it comes to use of force, we do not train our police officers to shoot and kill people. Uh, we train them to use the utmost restraint and only use the level of force that's needed to uh, accomplish a legal goal, protecting themselves, protecting a third party, stopping a crime, whatever it is. And these supervisors, the supervisors in your community take on this responsibility. When everybody goes to bed at night and you have a sergeant uh, running around, and he's or she is in control of the department because every, all the other supervisors are home in bed, the chief's in bed, the deputy chief, the captains, they're all in bed, they, they don't work midnight shifts. You might have a young sergeant or young lieutenant out there uh, and they are the ones who are gonna handle the danger that rolls down the road in your town. Now that could be involving you coming home late from something and you stop at a 7-Eleven, you're in the middle of a robbery. Uh, that can involve someone bumping your car so you pull over and you get robbed. You could be stopping at a corner and get carjacked. Uh, and we, we, then we would then turn to law enforcement and say, oh, we need help. Help us. You know, we've been victimized, whatever it is. So I just wanted to bring this up because there, there's so much nonsense out there about law enforcement, about what the police are trained to do and not trained to do. And, and we, see, we see all this... Um, misguided messaging. The blue line flag is a racist flag. It's, it's against minorities. That's what it stands for. It's not what it stands for. The blue line flag does not stand for racism in any way, shape, or form. The blue line flag is a, uh, a conglomeration of the American flag, the stars and stripes, which shows dedication and devotion to our country, to America. The blue colors that are in there are our dedication to law enforcement and to seeking justice and to protecting the public. And the blue line is what every officer is a part of. Doesn't matter your race, creed, religion, your color, your background. Every police officer, every law enforcement officer, probation officer, corrections officer, everyone in that profession, no matter where they work, are all blue. And we all stand on the blue line together to protect our communities. So when you see that blue line flag and you hear people say nonsense like, it's a racist symbol, it is not. It is a symbol of America, of justice, and of dedication to something greater than oneself, to the protection of the public. All right, so I appreciate you listening. This is Lieutenant Joe. We'll be back in a minute with more Chasing Justice. 
These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, my friends, to Chasing Justice, here with Lieutenant Joe. So, and that was a little self-indulgent, I'll give you that, the, uh, the first part of our show. But I think it's important. I mean, I, when I spend time with these young heroes, these young men and women, who have made the decision to protect our communities, to do the right thing, to, to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem, as we always talk about here, uh, it really is an amazing an amazing feeling for me to be there and be able to pass on my experiences and my thoughts about doing that kind of work so that we can help our community. And when I sit there, I see every kind of officer representing every kind of background, every kind of lifestyle. And, and when I say that they're all on the blue line, they're all part of the blue line, they are. Because th there's, no, there's no differences between each other at that point. One of the things I say is why do cops look after each other so much? Why, why do they feel tight in a family? Well, because we could die at any moment on our job. Um, but the reality is that's a binding thing. That bonds us and binds us together. And I tell the story that if I'm taking my family down to Florida from New Jersey to go to Disneyland or whatever, and in the middle of the night I'm driving and I see a trooper in North Carolina on the side of the road fighting for his life uh, with, uh, with somebody, I'm going to pull over, I'm going to jump out of my car, and I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to try and help that officer. Why? Because that's what I do. That's what law enforcement people do. Uh, we stick together. We watch out for each other. Uh, you know, the, the, old, uh, the old trope that it's, uh, it's us versus them. You know, there's a feeling of that in law enforcement because the officers sometimes can feel isolated. 
when you see people trying to defund the police, we don't need the police, lock up the police, throw the police in jail, shoot the police, kill the police. When we hear songs about shoot the police and kill the police, that can make our officers feel isolated and alone. Uh, and they shouldn't feel that way. Uh, this young officer in Chicago, uh, he went to work every day in a controversial city where they allow crime to run rampant. And this young man gave his life for his community. He's not coming home. He died in the line of duty. He is an absolute hero, just as all of our law enforcement officers are heroes, whether they give their lives or not. When they do die in the line of duty, that is an entire community loses something, not just the law enforcement agency or the officer and his, his or her family. The entire community loses something important. They lose a pillar of the community, a law enforcement officer. So I, I appreciate you letting me uh, go down that road. Um, and like I said, every time I teach, I, I'm thrilled. I'm excited that I get to uh, be with these young men and women and help guide them uh, to do the right thing for who? For you, right? To go out there and do the right thing for you and your family and help keep everybody safe and, and make sure we can all survive through till tomorrow and have a, uh, a good life. All right, so let me see. Um, I got to tell you, it happened again. You know, we, we get together here, and I'd like to get together more. I really do. Uh, I like our time together. But recently, um, I was sitting with uh, the Stiletto, Jack, Jack Stiletto, uh, rock and roll race car Jack. Uh, we get a lot, we get a big kick out of that uh, Claude Stiletto, uh, Delecto uh, names we've given each other, uh, playing off of the uh, Pierre Delecto by, uh, by Romney. Um, but I was talking to Jack the other day, and you know, we were saying so there's so much going on in our country that doesn't feel like our country anymore. Um, what is it we can actually do? I say at the end of all these shows, you know, be a part of this, be a part of that. And we're trying to always wonder what we can do. Well, one of the things um, that Jack and I were also talking about was staying healthy at this at this point in our lives. You know, we're, we're both uh, we're not kids anymore and we're trying to stay healthy. And. Jack, you know, we've been friends a long time, Jack and I, and he says, listen, man, you say, you say on the show here that, you know, you don't get these, uh, you don't get these sinus uh, problems anymore. Do you really not get these sinus problems anymore? I said, Jack, I got to tell you, um, I still get a tingle and I feel it. And in the past, I would know that, okay, here's what's about to happen. Uh, I got this, this sinus headache. I can feel the dripping and I'm going to be miserable for three, four, five days till I get to the doctor. But since I've been taking the healthy cell, the immune boost, um, and I take it every day. Um, I take it right out of the pack because I like it right out of the pack. But I take it every single day. I said, I get this, I start to feel the symptoms, and it's gone the next day. And I don't really do anything. It's just this. I, my, my body jumps up and kicks, kicks the butt, I guess, of the germs and gets rid of it. So um, I just wanted to tell you that, that I like the Healthy Cell Immune Boost products, and they're, they're out there. If you're looking for something, uh, give it a try. I know, uh, I think Jack's going to start taking it more regularly because he, he sees it's actually working for me. And he's a rock and roll race car guy, so he has to uh, be healthy when he's driving that car around. All right, so recently I saw um, the head of the Republican National Committee. Um, this, this young woman is in charge, and she seems to be very good, very capable at what she's doing. And I saw that they're going to have a, a pledge. They're going to come up with a pledge that they want all the Republican candidates for president to take. Uh, they're going to pledge, number one, that they're going to attend all the debates, that they'll come to whatever debates they have, and number two, that they will, um, they will endorse and support whichever one of them ends up winning the nomination. 
Now, right now, in the nomination, you really only have two Republicans so far. You have Donald Trump, who's way ahead. I think he's got 40-something percent of the vote. And uh, Mr. DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, he's like 28 percent, 25 percent. And then everybody else drops off after that. So the conversation among Republicans and conservatives, okay, who else can jump in um, that can go after Trump, that can displace him, displace him, and displace DeSantis? Who else can come running in and really have that? Well, I think the only person that that is really uh, viable for this particular go-round for 2024 uh, is Ron DeSantis. I mean, he is a solid candidate. He is a he's a good speaker. He's got a great record to run on. Uh, I think he's probably the only one uh, right now of of a great seat of of a seat of uh, Republicans that are out there. Um, any one of them would be better than than President Biden or Vice President Harris or uh, Schiff or uh, any of these other uh, candidates that our friends on the left might run. We need a good, solid American that believes in America, that wants to protect us from our enemies uh, abroad uh, and stop jerking around with us with all of this, uh, you know, moms and dads at a uh, at a school board meeting are, are terrorists. We got to go after them. You know, we got to go after the real terrorists. We got to go after the real danger. You know, the Chinese government, the communists, not the Chinese people. Uh, I think they're suffering in China. They're suffering under this uh, under this government. And I think uh, the, the, the Americans who are of Chinese descent are good, decent Americans. You know, when you come here, you come here and most people want to be American and they are. Uh, it doesn't matter your race, your religion, your creed or any of that. You come to become an American. And I think that's important. So I, I think this is what we need. And I'm looking around and say, I like Mike Pompeo, Pompeo, I, and I still always get his name wrong, but I liked him. I heard him on a show the other night and he seems very reasonable. Um, I don't know that he's a swamp creature. Um, he could be, but he seemed to speak the right, um, the right words. Uh, Nikki Haley, I, I, I kind of liked her when she ran for governor. I thought she was, she was strong. I, I liked her personality. I thought she was a good leader and she's a good governor. Um, and then she, you know, she turned on Trump like a lot of other people did. And I'd say, oh, maybe she's really a rhino. Maybe that's really what's going on here. She's a rhino. Uh, she'll take the job from him, but then she'll stick him in the back when she can. Uh, so she has said she wants to run. And, and I find that interesting. But she's down in the seven, seven percent. So is she really running for president or is she running for vice president? Now, this is um, this is something you'd have to calculate as a politician. You have national uh, you have national recognition. You're the governor of, a, of an important state, and you announce for president. You're going to get some press. You're going to get some people that are going to back you up. Uh, maybe you run for president, but you start to look. I have seven percent in the polls. Uh, am I going to make it for the nomination, let alone to win? No, but if I make a good enough stand, if I sound good and I say the right things, maybe whoever gets the nomination will look to me as a vice president, and then you get to be in two of the most powerful positions on the face of the earth, president and vice president of the United States of America. I think it's pretty cool. I think it's a shame though, and I say this, um, I don't know, I don't want to say facetiously, but I think I say this seriously. It's a shame that Lieutenant Joe can't just announce that, you know what, I'm an American citizen, I'm over 35 years old, I fit all the criterion, I think I would like to run for president. Uh, and then have the media show up uh, at my house and go, tell us why you want to be president and start to develop a following. Now, I don't mean I want to do that. 
I'm simply saying, in, in general, why can't a citizen run for president? Why do we have to have millions and millions of dollars uh, to do that? Because that really leaves it only to people who already have positions of power or very wealthy people to run. So our, our you know, the, the, uh, the hometown guy running for president, we're never really going to see that because the hometown guy might not have millions of dollars. We might see billionaires run, like Donald Trump. He's billions of dollars, so he can certainly run. Um, he turned out to be a very good president. But the average person, a guy like me, who has good ideas, I'm, I'm a good leader, I think. Um, I'm, I, have milit I have police background, so I understand law. I understand justice. I understand fairness. Uh, I understand how to do the right thing. I think, I think I would be a good president if I got to be president. But I, there's no way I ever could. How could I ever become president? Uh, who's going to jump up and, and say, well, here, here's, here's uh, $250,000 to start, Lieutenant Joe. Uh, go out there and go get them. Uh, nobody. So that's uh, my voice, just like most of our voices are the ones that are never heard. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Nikki Haley decides to run because she's got the governor's seat. So she can make an announcement and the press listens. Next thing you know, the press is there asking her. She's considered a viable person because she's already in government. Uh, we saw Donald Trump come from outside of government, and he was a very good president. His policies, his procedures, the things that he did was good. Did he have a mouth that was a little off the charts? Yeah, he did. But other than that, uh, he was a very good president, and he was a citizen. He just happened to be a citizen with billions of dollars. So uh, this pledge that they want to have, are you think, or do you think they're all going to follow through with it? I mean, there used to be a time, Ronald Reagan used to say, the, the first commandment was... Um, harm no other Republican, or something to paraphrase to that. In other words, you go out there and you could make your case, but you really shouldn't attack the other Republicans that are running because you never know who you're going to pick to be vice president. You're going to need people to endorse you. Um, and when we saw what happened when Donald Trump ran the first time, he savaged all of those people. Now, savage them, I guess that's a strong word, but he did give them nicknames that stuck with them that were embarrassing. And then when he started to get ahead of them in the polls, he really made them look silly. There's a career politicians with, with good stories to tell, good backgrounds. But here comes this upstart billionaire, and he was winning all the primaries. And the reason he was winning the primaries is because he was saying the things that mattered to people like me, to people like you, to other people out there, the millions of people who voted for him the first time and, and put him in the, in the White House above Hillary Clinton. We thought it was better than having a, uh, a person like her uh, as the president. So I, as I'm thinking about that, I'm saying, you know, is there a chance that Trump actually can get the nomination and then win? I think he could get the nomination. I think he could. Um, but could he actually win? Would, would, are people still so, um, I don't know, I don't want to say gun shy, but are, are people still so freaked out by the controversies that swir swir swirled around him um, that they would step away like they did when Biden ran? Uh, and say, listen, we just have to have calm. We have to have something other than all of this chaos. Well, it, you know, when, when I talk to the fellows in a neighborhood and we have these side conversations, a lot of them you don't get to hear, uh, but we talk about things. And that whole idea that people may not vote for Trump um, because, he, because of all the controversy that surrounded him, that controversy was all made up. It was all lies. There, there was no Russian collusion. There was none. That was made up by the Hillary Clinton campaign, our friends on the left, and the media. They made all that up, and it's been proven now. Uh, you know, this whole craziness with COVID, uh, this, was, this was a concocted kind of thing. The virus is real. 
The virus killed millions of people. It was very dangerous. But everything, the way we reacted to it, not allowing people to, uh, to try other drugs. Hey, I want to try these drugs. Uh, no, you're not allowed to have them. You can't have them. Um, a friend of mine, actually, uh, in, back in the, in the raging days of COVID, actually got her doctor to give her a prescription for ivermectin and, and hydroxychloroquine. And she went into a pharmacy and handed it to the pharmacist. And the pharmacist came back and said, um, what's this for? And she said, for COVID. Oh, you can't have it. I can't fill this prescription. And she says, what do you mean? This is, this is a prescription from my doctor. Do you have those drugs in the back? Oh yeah, we have them, but we can't give it to you for COVID. Who the hell made that decision? We can't give it to you for COVID. Did my doctor tell me I should take these drugs? Then why is some bureaucrat, why is some employee in a, in a, uh, pharmacy telling me I can't have it. What was that all about? Right? What was that all about? As we're seeing now, um, there was a lot of nonsense that went on. The, uh, the, uh, the reality that this came from a lab. When you first said that, this came from a lab. No, it didn't. It came from a bat in a market. And if you don't think that, you're a crazy person. You're a hater. You're... I don't know about you. But I've been around long enough to know that sure there are there are diseases that'll jump from animals, but this thing jumped from an animal in a food market and infected the world and killed millions of people. Of course not. Of course it was a biological weapon that came out of a weapons lab. It started in Wuhan, and what's in Wuhan? A biological weapons lab. You have to either be stupid or purposely avoiding that reality. And we avoided that reality for years, that this was a real potential. If you said this, they banned you from social media, they canceled you, they shut you down, you're a crazy, you're a nut to think the Chinese government would make a bioweapon and would get out of a lab, you're crazy. And now they're saying, yeah, we think this pretty much came out of a lab in China. It didn't come from a, a bat or a penguin or whatever else they were saying. Because I think the reality is if it came from the bat population, uh, which, okay, diseases do jump once in a while. It came from the bat pot. Wouldn't there be billions of dead bats in China? Wouldn't like, it, look how it infected Americans and, and the rest of the world. It, it attacked the world, this COVID, and it killed millions of human beings. Don't you think if it was natural to the bat population that it would have wiped them out, you wouldn't find any bats anywhere? I think that makes common sense. And this is what we've lost in the last couple of years. This, this craziness this anti-Trump delusion, uh, hatred delusion of Donald Trump has upended how many different parts of our world, of, of everything that we do. Our medical uh, profession was, was corrupted because of this anti-Trump hatred. Well, Trump likes it, we have to be against it. Trump says it's good, then it has to be bad. Uh, the media betrayed every one of us and lied about Russian collusion, lied, lied about, uh, you know, potentially uh, where this COVID came from. Uh, it, it, it changed the way we saw each other, the way we see each other. People don't talk to each other because you voted for Trump. I'll never speak to you again. Family members, right? Don't talk to each other because of this, because it was, it was pushed on as opposed to just, well, you have a different point of view. Um, I remember a, a friend of mine, his son, uh, was very concerned about Donald Trump becoming president. Um, 
and I was very close with this young man back in the day when, when our, my boys and, and my friend's son's boys, were, you know, we went camping together, uh, we hung out together, the, you know, the moms were friends and me and, me and my friend, were, we were good buddies and we did stuff together as families. So we, we were together as these boys were growing up doing Boy Scouts, doing sports, doing all these things. And later in life, you know, as it got to uh, after high school, this young man uh, saw himself in a different light, let's see. See, he had a different, a different view of who he was as a person and how he wanted to live his life. And it was accepted by his parents. It was accepted by me. I don't care who he loves, what he wants to do. He's still the same person he was when he was a kid, only now he's more aware of, of his surroundings and who he wants to be. And I think all good for him. What do I always say all the time? More love is better than less love, right? So this young man, and him and I are talking one day, and he he really, I don't want to say he, he got hysterical, but he did. And he's like, you don't understand. This Trump is going to round me and my friends up. He's going to round us up and put us in camps and, and try and change our thoughts and, and change who we are. And, and we'll be punished. We can't be who we are. And I'm, I'm saying, do you, you really believe that? You really, you really believe that this president's going to come into office and set up concentration camps for people who, who have uh, your desire in life. And he's going to put you in prison and he's going to try and make you, yes, I know what's going to happen. It's not going to happen to you. It's going to happen to me. I, I, I can't believe you would even think about that guy. I can't ever talk to you again. And he hung up on me and he wouldn't take my call again. We haven't spoken again since then. And I really want to have a conversation with him and say, did you get rounded up? Did somebody put you in a concentration camp? Did you hear one word about that when Trump was president? about changing people's uh, thought patterns because it's not the approved lifestyle. I didn't hear anything about that. But we heard about it the whole time, didn't we? That, that, that he was gonna come after and do things, and he never did. Now, where are people saying today, I guess we were wrong about that. I guess we got it wrong. Well, what happens every single time there's an election? Uh, how are conservatives and Republicans treated compared to how liberals and Democrats are treated? Uh, we hear a thousand stories about Republicans are bad, they're evil, they hate people, they're racist, um, they'll, they'll come after you, they, they will destroy you, they want to uh, give money to the wealthy and make everyone else suffer and die. Um, and None of that is ever true. Uh, look, what, look what the president had got called out on uh, every single time. They want to cut Social Security and Medicare. They want old people to die and not have medicine. Now this is scary talk. If you're an older person and you're living on Social Security, if you're living on, on Medicare, if that's all you have and you're hearing people tell you they're going to cut it, you're going to have no medicine because you know how many medicines older people are on? I'm not an older person yet. I'm more seasoned, but I'm not an older person yet. And I take a couple of medicines, right, to keep me healthy, to control, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my cholesterol and all that kind of stuff. I, I know some older people and they were scared to death. They actually believe that they're going to come in and that's the end of Social Security. And the president, President Biden, even said that in his in his speech, uh, his State of the Union speech. The Republicans want to cut this, knowing that that is an outright lie. No one is going to cut out Social Security. No one's going to cut out Medicare. But the reality is those programs are not going to survive if somebody doesn't do something about them. You know, uh, remember Al Gore? All that money was supposed to be in a lockbox. Put it in a lockbox. You would think that you look at your paycheck and you see on there Social Security, that you're paying into Social Security. You see in there and you see Medicare. You see that you think that money's going dedicated to that program. 
And you say, well, well, there's 100 million people working and everybody putting in $300 a week. That's got to be a lot of money, right? No, it doesn't go into a lockbox. It goes into the general fund and it's spent on all kinds of other things. It's spent on, on nonsense. It's given away uh, in ways that it, it's not earmarked. And I think all that all those Republicans were saying was that we need to look at this before it goes bankrupt, before we cannot afford to send out a check. We're now trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. Uh, your great-grandchildren owe hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're going to have to pay in their lifetime just to cover the debt we have today, let alone what we're going to have in the next 20 years. And when people try to bring this up, it is, it is so frustrating that we can't have a real conversation and talk about things because everything has become so damn political that there is no truth anymore. There's no honor anymore. There is do what I have to do, say what I have to say so I get what I want. And what I want is power. And I want money. And I want to be able to give people money so that they'll vote for me and I can have power. And this is, this is an unsustainable place we have found ourselves in. So one of the things I've said all along in, in the many years I've been here uh, doing this program is that the search for justice is a lot bigger than, than any one thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a cacophony of things, right? It's a, it's a whole conglomeration of things. And justice is fairness and justice is doing what's right. And, you know, we pay into all these programs so that we can help people you know so security is here for people who would have had nothing you know because back in the day they retired they had nothing to fall back on so it was a program it's a socialist program but it's a program that served its purpose it's kind of a public pension for people now I have a pension I'm a cop I put into it my entire career knowing that at the end I would be able to draw on it right it was it was a deal that was made well so social security it's a deal we all make we're gonna put into it and when we retire we're gonna get this money for some of us it's gonna be all we get and all we have for other people, it will be a supplement. It'll be, you know, extra money floating around. Um, but the reality is that was the deal we made. So to come out and, and lie, bold-faced lie to try and scare these elderly people and say, they're going to take away your Social Security, take away your Medicare, and let you die in your house. This is horrible. So when I, I did not like, and I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit it, I did not like uh, the Republicans... Uh, yelling at the president and jeering at the president when he made that statement. But at the same time, how else could that message get out? If they didn't call him a liar and, and make him retract basically what he was saying uh, and stumble backwards with his words, how else would that message have gotten out? Would the press have done a, a fact check? Would we have had a fact check on social media that, uh, well, President Biden's lying, one member of the Republican contingent said that it's going to go bankrupt and we had to find a way to maybe replace it or do something else so that people continue to get the money that they paid in. Um, no, we, we would not have that. That's the reality. There would not be um, a news report, a fact check or anything to counterman lies and nonsense that he, would, that he said. So people would continue to be scared. And that, that's unfortunate um, over the course of time that this is, this is where we've come to. So I hope the show didn't sound uh, depressing today. I was trying to be uplifting about our law enforcement people and, and uplifting here when I talk about this, but our world is a different place than it's ever been. It's, it's a different place than it's ever been. Our country's in a different place than it's ever been. And each week, something new comes out that we need to, we need to think about, but we gotta stop thinking. Pretty soon we have to start doing. So 
we have a Republican House of Representatives. Let's hope they're going to do some things. Make sure they're going to step in. They control the purse. That means they control the money. They should step in and shut down some of these programs that are no good. They should stop some of these things. Um, and I'm not saying Medicare and Social Security. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these other, uh, these other areas that we're just bleeding money out that you and I are paying in. Uh, I don't mind paying my taxes. I don't mind paying in. It's all part of what we do uh, so that we have a functioning government and country. People need help. We give them help. Uh, if, they, if they need government assistance genuinely, then that's what that's there for. I don't mind being a part of that. I don't like the money wasted. I don't like it um, funneled off. I don't like it going to places that does no good for us as American citizens. So this is kind of where I'm going with this, uh, you know, this second half, the second half of our show today to just bring up some of these things, uh, to think of some of these things. Right? So I want to thank you all for being out there. Um, you know, to combine both sides, I like to tie it all up in a bow here for you for today, is that, you know, we, we talked about crime and law enforcement and the blue line and what that means. That's part of our, our traditions as America. The police are on our side. They are an essence of good for our nation to help protect us, protect our families, keep us safe. Our government should also be that. Our government should be there for the people, right, to do what's right, to do what we need, and they need to listen to us. And they don't right now and we need to do something about that. We need to vote. We need to get past our biases. We need to get past our nonsense ideologies and figure what really is in the best interest of me and my family and this country. And we need to do that instead of arguing and fighting over the orange man, he said something terrible. How did the policies work out? And figure out how do we go down this road together, united as a nation, all of us, and live a good life. Right? So those are my thoughts for today, and I appreciate you all being here. This is Lieutenant Joe saying, remember, be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. See you next time.